Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Who are you? I am Cinderella. Your Majesty, I'm no princess. I have no carriage, no parents, no dowry. I do not even know if that beautiful slipper will fit, but if it does, will you take me as I am? An honest country girl who loves you. Of course I will. But only if you will take me as I am. An apprentice still learning his trade. Please. That's our story. That's what we've been studying in the Song of Solomon for these. This is our fifth time together to learn about a, a marriage that was made in heaven. And listen, this is what this is what we were meant to enjoy. These are we call them we call them fairy tales. But if if you jump on the strain of thought that goes with Chesterton and McDonald and Lewis and Tolkien, these men all said, no, 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 no. These these aren't fairy tales that won't happen. They are fairy tales that were meant to happen. They're part of our operating system of our souls. They're echoes from Eden. It was the way we were meant to be. And we were meant to have something like this. And, and, and because of the fall, we can't, but we can still grieve what we were meant to have. But again, this is Song of Solomon where he just says, no, no, no this is what marriage can be. I mean, look, look, look in the video clip. It just says, you know, who are you? I am Cinderella. Her name is not Cinderella. Her name is Ella. And she has been beaten down by the cruelties of her stepsisters, and they renamed her. And then she became, she began to believe, she, where's the name now? She began to believe that she deserved to live amongst the cinders with the ashes. And he won't have any of that. They won't ever call her that again because he will, through the power of encouragement and persistence over time, teach her to believe what is true, that she's a queen. Will you take me as I am in an honest country girl who loves you? And he doesn't say, yeah, you'd be lucky to have me. He says, no, 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 if you take me as I am. And he's a king. Because he, and so what he does is he stoops down and lifts her up. And that's part of our Solomon series, right? I mean, he, we're three for three here on our applications. The first one is, uh, right, that we're equals, that we look at each other eye to eye, that, that no one has any kind of superiority over the other person. We might have different roles, but we, we have equal status, that we give lavish encouragement on one another. We give that to each other. And our application last week, that we receive it. And we take by faith in the person that we love, who loves us. We take by faith 
that they're telling us what's true, and we let that wash over us, and we let it change us. That's, that's what God would have for us. That's what we were meant to have. Marriage is instituted by God to change us into the likeness of the way we were meant to be. Okay? Each of us has to pay our, play our part, absolutely. But you have to give and receive. You have to understand your place in this. But this is what God has. This is what we could have. So in our Song of Solomon series, you know, we're in our Song of Songs, just to catch up, we, we saw them date and get to know each other where she was feeling like just a silly country girl with a sunburn, and then they got engaged, and he taught her otherwise, and then they got, were married, and then last Sunday night we looked at their wedding night. And we're going to look today at three poems, like we've been doing three poems. We'll have three applications, one for each poem. And we're going to find today, like we did as, as we have before, that the purpose of marriage, or at least a purpose, not the purpose, a purpose in marriage is to, is to change us. So you have to go into marriage knowing that you will be the one changing. God is going to use, his spirit will use your marriage to change you. It's the way we're going to be refined. Look, Adam before the fall, right? Once upon a time, long time ago, right? It, he was perfect, but he was incomplete, he needed someone else to come on and so that he could be in the fullness of his Adamness. He needed Eve for that. And now with the fall, failures and injury are more common. They're regular all the time, right? Because we're self-centered, we're proud, we want people to change their lives for us instead of us being the ones that adapt. That adapt. Okay? So God's design, the, 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 way, the cure for all this vanity and selfishness is marriage more so now. Because in this marriage, it is, its foundation is commitment to each other. This promise of commitment that, right, that, that causes us to build trust on that foundation of commitment that gives us safety. And it's in that safety that we see the power of love. It, it, this, it's, it's a storm, right? It's a beautiful storm because it has the potential to alter our souls. So in Song of Solomon, it is a, uh, you know, an artistic, it's a poetic definition of marriage. In other parts of the Bible, there's declarative definitions of marriage that are pretty simple to understand, a husband and a wife for life, and now that's become counterculture. Of course... <laughs> Of course, add it to the list of other things that are counterculture. Because if you are a follower of the Bible, whether it's Jewish or a Christian, you, it's, it's, not, it's a paradigm difference. If we, if, we, if we get too detailed in the application differences, the, the list gets too long. Fundamentally, it's this. The people that believe in the Bible will always be, always be counterculture. Every culture, every epoch, because... The assumption is that people that believe in the Bible and follow the Bible, they have a sincere belief that, that the definitions of life, of, of purpose and morality, of what is right and real and true, have been given to us by someone outside of creation, a supreme being outside of creation, and we will answer to him. All the other, all the other worldviews have consequences in their values. They don't have that. And so if you look at the persecution of people, in, whether they're Jewish or Christian, it's because of the application of this foundational you know, belief system. And, and that's, listen, that's why Paul says that we should feel like, because we are, aliens. We're foreigners. We're, we're traveling, travel light, you know. 
don't get too attached to this place. This is not where we're from, and it's not what we're meant to be. He even says in 1 Corinthians 5, I'm almost sure it's 1 Corinthians 5, he says, what, what right do I have to judge people outside the church? Of course they're going to live out the consequences of a different paradigm, a different value, a different worldview. So this passage is saying, this passage is saying, look, look, here's an artistic, romantic, poetic definition of what marriage is. So let's look at that together. We'll look at three poems, three applications. The first one is, the first poem is about, I called it Too Tired to Care. Uh, let me tell you about what's going to happen here because it, it's difficult, it'll be difficult to make sense out of it. First, you need to know that our whole time of learning today is going to be a giant dream sequence. Okay? None of this is really happening. She, this, like in chapter three, uh, she's having somewhat of a, chapter three was a dream. This is a nightmare. And uh, this is after uh, the shine has rubbed off of their new marriage. And uh, it, it, love is, is, well, it gives, like it brings joy. Joy doesn't stay long, you know. <laughs> joy is just passing through. And what the actual dream is about, so you'll understand when we read it, is that she's laying in bed and she's already put herself to bed and her husband is, is calling her and would like to come in. He's been out. Uh, in the night, is, he's dew all over him and just wants to see his lover, and she's too tired. And she doesn't want to get her shoes on and get dressed and, because her feet will get dirty. And, but he insists and tries to get in, and that doesn't work, and then she goes to him, but it's, it's too late. And so it's, it's lost. It's a lost chance to love. It's love lost. And so there's grief that goes uh, with, with those decisions, and that's what we're going to read about. In other words, you know, it's not... It's not where we left it last week. It's a dream sequence, chapter 5, verse 2. I'll put these on the screen so we can all read the same translation. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. That means I'm dreaming. A voice, I heard a voice. My beloved is knocking. Listen to how she dreams about the way her husband treats her. It's, it's so normal now. This is what he says. Uh, Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. Always encouraging. All these nicknames. For my head is drenched in dew, and my locks are damp from the night. And then she says, I have to take off my dress. I've, I've taken off my dress. I, I, should I put, I'd have to put it back on. I've washed my feet, and then they become dirty again. So now her enthusiasm has become indifference, right? her apathy. But she, he's still persistent, so he's going to try to get in right? the locked door. So verse 4 my beloved extended his hand through the opening, and my feelings were aroused for him. So I arose, and I went to open the door for my beloved, but my, and my hand was dipped in myrrh, and my fingers with liquid myrrh, and on the handle of the bolt, he left his cologne all over the bolt and the doorknob. So she would, he would left his calling card. Okay, so she swings the door open, and verse 6 says, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved was gone. He turned away, and he's gone. My heart went out to him. That's, my heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I, I did not find him. I called him, but no one answered. This section is the honeymoon is over. It's difficult. It is difficult to be married. There's so many, com there's so many competing values, and uh, it's, it's, we're naturally lazy. And then the difference between the way men think and the way women think. And then there's the whole the way another person's thinking, but, but ultimately, one of the big issues is, is willingness to change. And whether I'm going to change to meet your needs, the mate or the mate will change to meet my needs, and whether change is even part of the marriage, but the, one of the purposes of marriage is to change. 
is to find each other in the middle. And so it says in, in verse 6 there that when my heart went out to him, some translations will say, and when my heart broke for him, she really, she, now she gets compassionate towards him, and, and, she, and she wants to go and meet with him. And uh, one translation said, uh, I nearly died when I found out he was gone. So she misses this opportunity, and so she's going to go out on the street and look for him. She's going to call his name. And remember, this is still the dream sequence uh, because some harsh things happened to her. Verse 7, now the watchman who make the rounds in the city, just like in chapter 3, if you remember, uh, they found me. And look what they did. They struck me and they wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls, they took my shawl away from me. What's happening here? Okay, you, don't, you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to figure this out. She, she is weighing heavy with regret and remorse. She's being mugged by the watchmen, the, the men who are supposed to keep things safe. She's being, her psyche, her conscience has caught her. And she's being emotionally mugged. She's feeling tremendous regret and remorse. She, she, selfishness has, has borne its fruit in her. And that's what, that's what that, that phrase is referring to. And so she still can't live with this. And so she goes and seeks her friends, remember the daughters of Jerusalem, to see if they might know where he is. And so in verse 8 says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved... As to what you will tell him, will you, will you tell him that I am lovesick for him? So that's the end, for the most part, of the, first, of the first poem. I think we should kind of step back and make some observations, because in those observations, we'll be able to apply this passage to our lives. Okay? So just let's keep in mind that um, how real this is. I love, I love that this book is it's a poet book, right? It, it, it could be a folk song, but it's real, isn't it? It, we're talking about having arguments in your marriage, and that's what happens, right? Because if, if it's built on commitment and then commitment brings about trust and trust brings openness, it makes us vulnerable to one another. Our mates can injure us because we allow them the permission to be able to do that. And little things can cut deeper than they would with other people because we, we have our shields up with other people. And so why it seems a little, it is a bit trivial here, but it's, it's still a deep wound because of their care for one another. So here, one of the first things, the first way to, to apply this section, I think, is to say that you need to stop your arguments, stop your injuries to one another early. The sooner, the sooner you stop doing damage to one another, the better. You know the voice inside your head when you're having a disagreement that says, Oh, you're right. I mean, you're absolutely, and, you know, he or she's going to get this if you just keep persisting. You know, go, man. You're almost, okay, that's not God. <laughs> He's not egging you on. That is your ego. That's your pride saying, I've almost won. Win? Win? Okay. Uh, one, of the, one of the best things that ever happened to my wife and I in our early marriage, we were having a lot of difficulties uh, so much so, I was, I was in graduate school, and I was walking across campus, uh, clearly hanging my head like a beat dog, and uh, one of the professors walks up next to me and sits me down at this uh, picnic table and said, Matt, I understand you got married in September. I did. Yeah, I think we all know that. It's going to get better. <laughs> so I was, it was obvious to everyone. And, and here's, one of the, here's one of the rules that we set up that I would encourage you to consider, because it, it, it helped us. We didn't like our arguments to go long, and so we gave each one of the rules that we made in argument is that either one of us could, 
kind of pull a timeout card, you know, a little, little green card or something, or a red card, and say, timeout, timeout. More is not making this better. It's dragging it out, and we're starting to hurt each other more. So timeout, and timeout meant, <laughs> it's like putting a child in timeout. Timeout meant you had to go somewhere else and study your Bible and pray to God and ask that he would give you insight into this argument, right? So because of that, <laughs> she pulled that on me way more than I ever did on her. And I hated it because, you know, when you go off and you read a couple passages about what Jesus would do, <laughs> um, you end up going back and taking responsibility and apologizing. So I lost a lot of arguments over that time out. It was wonderful, though. It kept us from bludgeoning each other. You end this early. It'll, it'll save you. It'll save your arguments from getting out of hand. The second thing that you can see in this passage is that she takes responsibility. It was her fault. She was the one that chose to be slothful, and so she, she realizes that I have to make it right. And so what does she do? She gets out of bed. She gets on her outdoor clothes. She puts on her shoes. These all the things that she didn't want to do before. And then she goes outside. And she goes wandering the streets at night, which is dangerous. And sure enough, she gets mugged by the watchman. And to further, she's humiliated by asking for friends for help. No matter what her motive was, right? Who knows how bad her day was? Maybe it's justified. But it doesn't, she caused the injury, and so she's taking responsibility to make this right. Wonderful application for us today. In, out of this first poem. This, the second poem is, before we look at it, is I want you to see uh, ahead of time just how beautiful this book is. I, let me get a little bit academic here for you to appreciate the Song of Solomon, how uh, strange it is, especially for the time and the place when it was written. This, this next section of Scripture, chapter 5, 6, and 7, there are about 111 um, uni- Hebrew verses, and out of those 111 verses, 80 of them will be by her. Very unusual for a woman to be writing. And then what we're about to read is her description of her husband. Now, there's less than five pieces of antiquity where a woman, in, you know, in some sort of way, and especially in poetry, would describe a man. They just weren't allowed to do that. And so when you read the scholarship behind this, they'll say, Let's, these, these, the number of passages that she writes and the fact that she's going to be describing her husband in such a sensual way says about the equality that they had with one another and the freedom that she was given by him, okay? That just, just to let you know the mood that's, that helps you have some background. Okay, let's look at poem two. Poem two I entitled, what did I, Beloved Remembers Rightly. She's going to, she goes to her girlfriends and say, hey, can you help me find him? They say this in verse nine. Uh, what kind of beloved is your beloved, O oh, most beautiful among women? What kind of beloved is your beloved uh, that you should adjure us? So now she's going to sing this song, pictured as a song, and now here's what I want you to listen for. She's not describing him in a visual way. If you make a list of what she says, you'll never be able to find this man in a crowd. Okay? Because her descriptions are not about his physicality, it's about his caricature. His character is brilliant and valuable. She's going to use precious metals and precious stones because his character and his value to her uh, is immeasurable. Okay. And so that's what we're going to see. That's what I wanted you to know. So she's singing the song, verse 10. My beloved is dazzling. He's ruddy. He's outstanding among 10,000. Here's the description with this precious materials. His head is like gold. Oh, no, no, pure gold. 
His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside the stream of water. Bathed in milk, his cheeks are like the bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. Oh, his hands, they're rods of gold set in barrel. His, his abdomen, it's carved ivory, ivory inlaid with, saf- with sapphires. His legs are pillars, alabaster, set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice of all the cedars. <laughs> Now she has her hands on her hips. She's realizing her husband, what what he means to her. And now she says this in verse 16. His mouth is full of sweetness. He is wholly desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. You've asked me who this is. This is him. I love how she says, "This this is my hero. This is my friend. This, this is the person she enjoys spending the very most time with. And she ends her uh, monologue with her girlfriends by going back to our refrain, chapter 6, verse 3, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And later, it, I mean, the same sentence goes on and says, he who pastures his flock among the lilies. She says, oh, he's at work. He didn't run off for a loaf of bread and not come back. He's just, he's just working the sheep. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. She goes back and says that because she belongs to him and he belongs to her because of the commitment they had that built trust, that built built safety. That's what she's claiming. And and listen, this is how we can apply this. Look look how we can apply this, this second poem here. The first thing is, isn't it easier just to do right? Have you thought about that? Wouldn't it have been easier if she just got up and walked across the floor and opened that door? That is the nature of most of our regrets when we have arguments. You know, um, if, you, if you just tally up the cost of this thing, okay, so, so she'd put her shoes back on, and then she'd put on a robe, and she'd walk over, and she'd open the door. Okay, that's what it would have cost. Here's what it did cost. She ended up putting on street clothes. She ended up putting on street shoes. She ended up going out, to the, out of town, roaming the, the city at night. She ended up getting emotionally mugged. She ended up having to be humiliated by asking her girlfriends for help. That's a lot more, all the shame involved. Just if she, if she could get in that DeLorean and go back in time, she would have just opened the door. Isn't it easier just to obey? You know, um, we've looked through, if you've been at Grace this year, 2015, we've been kind of working our way through the various motives in the Bible on why you should surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Uh, it's not uncommon for churches to just emphasize one of those things, and that's kind of the drumbeat that they... They hit regularly. But I want to show you that that's not the case in the Bible. There's multiple motives, five or six motives, to why you should obey God. We looked in the book of Galatians about the glory of God, who he is, and that he made us. Boom. Just do what you're told. He's in charge. The glory of God. That's a motive. Uh, We looked at gratitude because in Galatians it it talks about the the grace that transforms us, and that's a free gift, and he sent his son to die for our sins, and there's nothing we do except receive that gift. So out of just raw gratitude, we should obey him. That was a good motive. And then we looked right after after Galatians, we spent two or three weeks on rewards, That, that you make choices and you will be rewarded in heaven for eternity, crowns, some some sort of physical expression of reward. That's a good motive. And now their fourth motive, because it's easiest. It's cheapest. It's fast. It, this is, um, 
It's almost embarrassing, right? It's, it's like someone coming, running, running in and say, with, a, with an owner's manual saying, it's right, it's true. Look, the owner's manual's true. Yeah, really, it is the owner's manual, yes. So you lazy people out there trying to find the easy way to get through life, here's the secret. Okay? Here's the secret of an easy life. Just obey him. Just obey him. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You know why? Because it is. There's, a, there's, a, there's some raw pragmatism here that, that, that stoops to our level of selfishness and just says, why don't you just surrender every aspect of your soul to him? It's easier. The second thing that we can see in the application here is it's worth the cost of reconciliation. I just, you know, remember I just ran up the bill for, for how much it cost her? But what does she get in reconciliation? How did she describe him? Gold, nah, pure gold. Precious stones embedded in ivory. Pillars from the cedars of Lebanon. She's getting her money's worth. It is worth the cost of reconciliation. And then I think the last part of this application is that reconciliation, okay, it's, it, you start thinking the best about your partner. Let me tell you why you lose a friend or sometimes lose an argument or, or, or lose a marriage. Okay? Sometimes you'll, people are, are drifting apart. I'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But when you trace it back, it's because uh, I knocked on the door and she didn't get up. And you're like, how, how could that lead to this? Here's how trivia leads to separation. Because our fragile egos insist that we're right. And so when we have an argument, right, and that little voice in our head is saying, oh, you're right. Oh, you were absolutely right. That's not God. Okay, that's your ego. And, and one of the ways we compensate is to, is to start thinking all the negative things our partner has done or has said or is. Because that inflates us and it makes us righter. And, and listen, it doesn't take long for diamonds to go back into coal. And so we just keep focusing on those negative things. It doesn't take long. That inventory of bad things, it'll destroy a marriage. It'll destroy a friendship. C.S. Lewis in his book, Screw tape letters. It's a book about how to be a good demon. And so it's all sarcastic, right, or opposite. So this older demon's te- teaching this younger demon about this couple he's working on. It's a father, it's a mother and a son. And his client is the son. And he just became a believer. And there's harmony breaking out in the house because he's following Christ. And, and, and he says, you've got to split this harmony up. We've got to get right on it. So well, well, how do we split the mom and the son up? And the demon says this. He goes, make sure... He focuses on all the little things that annoy him about his mother, especially her squeaky voice, and never let him think about her sacrificial love for him. That's all it takes. Come down for dinner, honey. Why are you nagging? (laughs) And then they're off and running. What does she do? She does just the opposite. She's not going to spend her time fascinated and fixated on the three things that she doesn't like about him. She counts her blessings, and they keep adding up, and she says, oh, I want him back. I want him back. That's what we can learn. Now, now when we look at this next one, uh, the, next, the, the last poem is how he responds. I want us to be looking at how he responds, and I, I want you to be, uh, notice that he loves her regardless of the weather, regardless of circumstances, here's what to listen to, listen for as we read it, because it's insightful. It'll help you get insight. Uh, 
see if it sounds like it's a deja vu moment. See if you've ever heard these words from him before, okay? Listen to how he's overwhelmed with her beauty and character, and listen finally how he compares her to others, okay? That's what to listen for. Let's read it together. I think I'm on chapter 6, verse 4. This is him responding to her reconciliation invitation. He said, you are as beautiful as this beautiful town, Tirzah, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome as an army with banners. Your eyes, turn your eyes uh, away from me, for they have confused me. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Gilead. Wait, that sounds familiar. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes, which have come from washing, and all of their, they all have twins. Oh, look, they're straight, and they, all of them are there. You have all your teeth. None of them lost, right? Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate beyond your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines, and the maidens are without number, But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of the one who bore her. The maidens saw her and called her blessed. The the queens and the concubines did too, and they praised her name. Do you remember those phrases about her description? That was his wedding night speech to her. He's saying to her, nothing's changed. I I said what I said, and I mean it, and I still do. When you look at how to apply this section, you can see that the, the offended cannot wait for reconciliation. He cannot wait to praise her. He's going to let her finish the sentence of apology so that she gets it off her chest, and then he is going to pounce on getting back together because it's about commitment that brought about trust that gives freedom to one another. You hear about people growing apart. I mean, you read it in the paper about famous people. You see it in friends' life, or maybe you're experiencing growing apart. Can I tell you how that happens? It's a whole way of thinking about marriage that's wrong. Growing apart happens when, when people, uh, their marriage is like a tug-of-war. If you've ever seen competitive tug-of-war, I don't know why you would do this. see tug-of-war on TV. But anyway, I've been in a few competitions, I'll have you know. Anyway, what happens is there's a line on this side and there's a line on that side and the teams are behind the lines and then right in the middle of the rope, there's a red ribbon. And the, the way you win is you drag the ribbon on your, across the line on your side and then you win. And then so you're going back and forth. And, and, and marriages are like, are like tug-of-wars where one side over here is saying, you know, I think this is awesome. We're going to live happily ever after as long as you are on my side. And take on my family values and my traditions, and you do so that I'm happy. Very common. And then on the other side, the gal's over here, and she's doing the same thing, tugging. Okay, I'll give. Look, look, it's going that way. I'll, I'll, you, I'll pull on this side. And so the only time we're, we're and we're calling these victories as they get closer, the ribbon gets closer to some line. And sometimes people quote grow apart when they're tugging over here and they see the red ribbon getting too close to their side saying, you know what, I'm never going to get what I want. We're never going to live where I want or or do what I want. And it's not like one person sacrificing, they're just losing the tug of war. War. And here's why it's wrong. Because there's no you and I it's us and we. When you get, look, when you get married, when you get married, these individuals, they go away and they contribute to the us. They contribute to the we. 
So when you get introduced, at a, right, they, we don't say, hey, this is Mr. Uh, Bill Smith and this is uh, Leslie Smith over here. No, we say Mr. and Mrs. It's one family. We're starting, when they leave, it's one unit. And so the decisions are made, how can I contribute to us? How can you contribute to we? Because each person, you're just extensions. You are an extension of us. I am an extension of we, not the other way around. And so when you, make, when you see that yourselves, when two become one, when you see yourselves as this one thing, then you make decisions based on that, that new entity, that new soul, this merged soul. You can't grow apart because you're not working against each other. You're not working for you. You're working for us. But the problem is... <laughs> It takes two to fall in love and one to leave. So, as much as it's up to you, you do whatever you can to contribute to us, to we. As much as it's up to you, you surrender your life to Jesus. You do the easy thing. You do what God tells you to do. That's what God wants for you. God has great... (laughs) He wants to bless us with intimacy and marriage that transcends our selfishness. I think Melinda and I were married 10 or 15 years. We were watching our video. It was a really terrible video. We saw images and what sounded like our voices on there. But one of us said, I can't remember who, but it said, you know, that's the least we've ever known each other, and that's the least we've ever loved each other. And if you'd have told us on our wedding day that that was true, we just laughed. And it's, it's, it's true. God wants... He desires, he's given you an echo of Eden that sounds like a fairy tale, and it is good to desire that. He put it there. As much as it's up to you, will you do what's necessary to be the right person, to be a king or to be the queen? You need to do that. You come back next week. I want to talk about how to go deep in a relationship for a long period of time. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture, and it's mystical. It is spiritual, and it will help us to enjoy what God has for us. Let's close our learning time in prayer. We have a wonderful song to sing. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would give this church a lighthouse of marriages, that the maidens saw her and called her blessed, that the queens and the concubines also, they praised her. They praised the marriages here because we surrender to you. Lord, I'd ask that you would speak very specifically to us, each each person here whose spirit you own. And I'd ask that you would call us out clearly, maybe even harshly, about the part we play in our marriage or the part we're playing in trying to be married someday. And whether we're doing this according to your will, that we would desire to serve, to give, to to express the fullness of marriage between a king and his church, that that we would pursue reconciliation, we would take responsibility, that we would end our arguments early, that we would we would desire to be reconciled with, that we would care and love and feel deeply. Let the rivers of our soul run deep and wild. Let us drink full the life that you've given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.